Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child through the method of catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am your host, Carrie Mecki Lozano. I am really excited to have everyone here with us today. We are shifting gears, so we just finished our four-part series on the book study with the Good Shepherd and the Child, A Joyful Journey. And if you did not participate in that with us, that's okay, because you can go back and listen to those episodes whenever you have time to do that. On our website, we still have all the discussion questions so that you can journal with them or get a group of friends together to do that book study. It is there for you whenever you are ready to do it. So we are shifting gears a little bit today. We have Anne Garrido, who is back on the podcast with us, and we're going to be talking about typology. So if you don't know what typology is, that's perfect, because that's what this episode is about. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back, Anne, to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. We are so excited that you're here with us again. Carrie, I'm so delighted to get to be invited back. (laughs) For those who did not have a chance to listen to our podcast, that was way back on April 1st. Anne Garita was there with us. So Anne, would you tell all of our listeners again who you are? (laughs) Carrie, I am a catechist of the Good Shepherd. I've been involved in the movement since, I guess, about 1995. Um, and I've been a formation leader at all three levels for the last decade or so. Um, and I, um, on the faculty at Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis, Missouri, where we have the MAPS uh, CGS program, we try to do leadership development for the CGS movement in North America. You're also an author of many amazing, amazing books. A few books on our CGS USA website, as well as you have some books on your own personal website. We'll have to put links to those in the show notes. Yeah. And one of them that I think probably we'll be drawing on a little bit today is A Year with Sophia Cavaletti. So one of my own areas that's just been really fascinating to me as a theologian is to go more deeply into what were some of the theological sources that underpinned our work in CGS Mm -hmm. um, and to look at some of the authors that it just shaped Sophia's thinking in that regard. So we'll talk about some of those today, I'm sure. And I love that in doing that, it helps us to kind of understand not only Sophia, but her theological work a little bit more whenever we do research these theologians and historians who influenced her so deeply. So I think that that is really beautiful and necessary. Totally. Well, today we're going to be talking about typology. And before we do that, I know that we are probably going to be saying a few words or phrases that I want to make sure are clear to everybody in our audience. So one of those words is parousia. And could you explain to us what is parousia? I think some people actually pronounce it also parousia. Um, Yeah, true. So one of the things, let me just back up one step because I think it'll be essential for getting there, is that Sophia, um, in her own thinking about children, she says there are, there are three great mysteries um, that all human beings are wrestling with, and we could say children and the child in each of us, um, and not necessarily mysteries that we can conquer or master, but mysteries that we need to figure out how to make peace with and to live within. And she says the first of those is the mystery of relationship. Um, Who am I? Who are you? What does it mean Mm -hmm. to be in a relationship and how do we celebrate that? The second one, the mystery of life and death. Like, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to die? Um, And the third one is the mystery of time. 
And she says, in some ways, that might be the greatest of all mysteries. And the child we recognize only begins to really ponder the mystery of time after the age of six, like the elementary child. So in level two, one of the great lesson of level two is um, thinking about the mystery of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to announce and that we're familiar with from level one, where in level one, we look at some of those parables about, well, what is the kingdom of God like? In level two, we think about, well, in the mystery of time, where did the kingdom begin? Has it always been? Where is it going? Will time always be exactly the same as it is right now? Or is it actually heading somewhere? And so we do a work in level two that's like a history of the kingdom of God or a history of God's work on our planet and in time. And what we would say is that the history of the kingdom of God begins very small, like a mustard seed. Mm -hmm. We know that it has, that it climaxes in a moment that we call redemption and the coming of Jesus, where we could see where God's plan for time is headed and is realized in a person. But we would say there is more of time that we are continuing to live because we await a final moment when what happened in Jesus Christ will happen in all of us. Like Just like God was totally present and permeated every cell of Jesus Christ's being, um, that that will happen in the whole world. And so we call that moment of the fullness of the kingdom of God being realized globally, universally, mm -hmm. the parousia. And it comes from a Greek word, um, parousia, means with being with being. So it's when God's being will permeate every cell and fiber of, of, of all that is. Um, so a, a phrase that we draw on a lot with the level two child from scripture is a passage from St. Paul. Uh, it's first Corinthians chapter 14, verse 28, when God will be all in all. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed my formation with this idea of the three great moments throughout the history of the kingdom of God, because it allowed me to think about history, specifically the history of the kingdom of God, not in this idea that this was in the past and this is the present, but more of like this build up, like we needed this step to build to this step and then build to this step. And towards this goal that we have, where we are all working towards this huge, this this idea of the light spreading and slowly getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're working towards the light getting encompassing all of creation. Yeah. Um, and then this idea that we have a place of being able to spread that light. So whenever we do any, any service or any love or, um, anything that builds light, we are in a way building parousia and, mm -hmm. I, that was just really impactful for me. And it constantly is in my mind, that imagery of the light spreading and spreading until we've encompassed it all. So when we look at this timeline with children, you're naming another really critical moment in the timeline, which is what we call the blank page. Yes. That the time between, like since redemption, that light and life of the risen Christ has been spreading to all the peoples of the earth. Um, because it's God's plan, but he's, God's doing it in collaboration with human beings. So like you're saying, like through our collaborating with God, through lending the work of our hands to be part of that mm -hmm. big plan of God, we are writing on the yet blank page of history, moving mm -hmm. in the direction 
of this moment that has yet to be mm-hmm. of the parousia. And sometimes we'll see the parousia breaking in into time. We'll get moments, a glimpses of what the fullness of the kingdom of God will look like uh, that give us hope and energy to keep working and to keep striving as we're waiting for that moment to be realized for all of creation. And give us an example of that. Give us an example of those moments where we get glimpses of parousia in our, in our time today. Well, I think in Jesus's time, one of the snapshots of the fullness of the kingdom of God that he would give people, because he, Jesus was all about announcing the kingdom of God and the full, what, what the world will look like when the fullness of the kingdom of God is realized. So he's mm-hmm. always talking about it by way of parables, but he would also practice it by way of, and give signs of it. So one of the ways we could say is he gave signs of it when he worked miracles, that he would give a, a snapshot to us to give us a sense of great hope of what God dreams for creation. We could also mm-hmm. say he practiced it into being by the way that he was in relationship with each other. So for example, he would oftentimes eat meals with people, um, sinners and, and people who ordinarily wouldn't have been invited to the table. Like Jesus would sit down and he would give an example of the kingdom of God will be like um, when all all people are able to sit down and break bread with one another. And in some mm-hmm. ways, the Last Supper in that regard, or any time that Jesus ate a, a meal with his friends, it was a sign or a snapshot of the parousia. So in that way, we could say that when we continue to engage some of those same signs that were used in the ancient past to give pictures and snapshots of the parousia, even up till now, we continue to get a picture. We participate in the movement of history toward the parousia. So a key way in our own lives that we still experience that is through the sacramental life. Mm-hmm. When we sit down at the Eucharistic table, we're getting a snapshot of the parousia. When we participate in being washed in water, like we are participating, we're getting a snapshot of what it is mm-hmm. that God has dreamed for all people of all time. And that's that's when we're beginning to think about this work of our theme today, which kind of a scary topic for many people because like, what does typology mean? But it really means the ways that we continue to participate in the patterns that God has set and marked all the way throughout time from the time from creation all the way until the parousia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to imagine typology as kind of wrinkles, maybe. I don't know if that's ah. correct. So correct me if I'm wrong. But like whenever you're sewing, you know, you're connecting this piece of the fabric to this piece of the fabric to this piece of the fabric. And mm. and it kind of creates then this the beautiful picture whenever you put the, the wrinkles together. I don't ah. know. That's just how my brain yeah, I've not thought of it that way before, but that's beautiful. Obviously, my Im- I have all these images is to make it <laughs> to make it make sense in my head. <laughs> right, 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 right. I think one of the metaphors sometimes I've used for myself, and again, it's just like one other like the way my brain has processed some of it is sort of like in a crime scene, like when the police <laughs> go in, even though the criminal's not there anymore, the police can go into the crime scene and be like, "Oh, we think it's this." I don't know, the the red caped bandit, because (laughs) they always leave this trace behind. 
Absolutely. Like, oh, they always leave a red fiber of wool behind you know, or something like that. And that's how we know. you watch, in. <laughs> I know, really. Uh, but it's always like, we know who the robber is because of there's a certain, there's an MO that they have. Yes. And what I sometimes think of is within history, we can recognize what God's MO is. Mm-hmm. Like God has a certain pattern or certain traces that God leaves behind in history, a God's preferred way of, of working in history, if you will. And typology is looking for, instead of, instead of saying a red wool fiber, we could say a golden thread that yes. keeps winding its way all the way through history. And that, that particular image of like golden thread comes from something that St. Augustine wrote way back in the fifth century of a sense of typology as looking for the golden thread of God's presence that weaves all the way through history and recognizing patterns in which God has worked and played in time. I didn't realize that that imagery of the golden thread went all the way back to St. Augustine. That's really cool. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure about that. I have to double check that, but I think that that, um, I think that that's true. I thought that that was from Sophia. So again, here's part of that historical context that you're talking about with looking at the deeper theologians that influenced her. That's really cool. Well, and the church fathers really were those who, um, I wouldn't say they're the ones who began typological work. We could trace that back into into Judaism itself, into Jesus's own people. But in the early church, they are known for for the for the typology that they did and the way that they preached typologically, which is something that um, Sophia and Jana and the children really recovered in the atrium life. Mm-hmm. And when you say that they preached typologically, is that how you would say that? Typologically? Mm-hmm. When you say they would preach typologically, do you mean that whenever they would say an imagery, for example, or even in Jesus's time, preaching typologically, he would give a certain example of her question. And he knew his audience would understand that he was referring back to something in the Old Testament. Is that what you mean whenever you're saying that they were preaching typologically, that whenever they would say something, they knew that people were already uh, connecting those dots with the past in order for them to get fully understand what he was trying to say in the present? Yeah, or that they would just they would help people to connect the dots from the past mm. so that they would be in their preaching, they would help people to trace the golden thread of God's presence through time. So within Judaism, one of the things that we recognize is that like the prophets were some of the earliest typologists, we could say that when the prophets were trying to talk about what God was doing in history and their own time and what God had planned under the future, when they're searching for language to give to the, to the, what they're intuiting, um, they're going to use, they're going to use images from the past to try to convey what God is doing now or what God has planned unto the future. Um, and Jesus did that. Uh, Jesus as a prophet, we could say, did that also. So for example, when he says, um, there's a passage in scripture where he says, no sign shall be given you, but the sign of Jonah. Well, he's relying on the fact that people know what Jonah is, right? And what was the sign that Jonah was given? That Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale Mm -hmm. and then was spit out on the other side. And when Jesus is, is using that image, 
he's trying to describe like the re- the his death and resurrection. He's like, how could we begin to even understand what this mystery is like? It's like we don't have language for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, it's kind of like the story of Jonah, right? That mm-hmm. shall be swallowed in the dark for three days, but but come out alive in a bright, vibrant new ways on the other side. So um, he also uses, for example, the image of uh, being lifted up on the cross in John, which is an allusion back to something that happened um, in his people in ancient times, the snake that was li- lifted up on the pole in the desert and is heals all those who have been bitten by the serpent. You know, like it's like he's using images from the past to try to describe the mystery of his own um, Paschal experience. Mm-hmm. So it would be natural that the, the earliest disciples would also engage in that kind of threading um, images from the past into the present and trying to describe what God is doing unto the future. Mm-hmm. So all the way through, and in a particular way, we could say in the way that they begin to talk about what Christians are living and experiencing in the sacraments. So some of the beautiful typological preaching we have from the early centuries of the church, and again, this is associated with like Augustine or Cyril of, of Jerusalem or Origen, Tertullian, like these early church thinkers, is that like when they're describing, they're saying, okay, so let's have this experience. You're being baptized. Well, like, why are you being baptized with water? Why do we dunk you into the water? And then they'll begin to trace for people. Well, it's because at creation, the spirit moved over the water and new life burst forth. And in the Exodus, the spirit or God um, through, the, through Moses's uh, staff split open the waters and the people walked through the waters. And on the other side, they had been in slavery before, but now new life exists. And so they're giving people clues. When we send you through the waters of baptism and we yank you out again on the other side, we're trying to tell you that you are connected to a history that exists long before you and it's going to continue to go on long after you, but you are participating in that history by the way that you too have walked through the waters, by the way that the spirit here also has moved over these waters. So it's a way in which we continue to live um, this divine history of salvation, even in our own lives, even in this present moment, uh, especially in the sacraments. So in, in CGS, Sophia said from very early on, we have two pillars, everything that we do, is scripture and liturgy. Mm-hmm. But as the children get older, what she begins to realize is these are not really two distinct things. These are, they're like a braid, huh? Scripture and liturgy are intertwined all the way throughout our tradition. And there's a beautiful passage. We see it even in RPC one, where she says, there's not like a scripture that we read and a liturgy that we live. There's a scripture that we live the whole of our own lives, most especially or most celebrated in a particular way in our liturgical experience. So that liturgy is the way that we continue to live the story of salvation, the history of salvation that is revealed in scripture. Like we're still in that same flow of time. So in living, in celebrating the liturgy, we are participating in the history 
that has gone before us all the way back to creation through our Jewish history, Jesus, all the way today. We're participating in that history because of yes. this. Typology. And we're longing for a future, a parousia, mm -hmm. in which this presence of God's going to become more and more and more and more alive. And so it also is a way of, she says, living between memory and hope mm. of what, of a future that is, that is yet to come. I love the way that typology allows us to have a fuller understanding of what we're participating in. Yeah. Like what you were saying with baptism, you know, whenever we connect those golden threads up to today's of baptism, like what you were saying with creation and, and Moses and the flood and all of those things that we connect mm -hmm. it to baptism. Then when we participate in a baptism, maybe we go to someone's baptism, we, there's a deeper understanding of what is happening whenever we've been able to connect it to all these moments of history. And well, what was God doing then? What was God doing then? What was God doing then? And if we're connected to that now, then what all is he doing now? And it has this deep, deep, deep meaning that wasn't there before, whenever we understand typology in those moments. And I think that that's really, really beautiful. It's so true. And that so as the child gets older and the more familiar that they become and that we become with the stories that undergirded Jesus's consciousness, you know, like Jesus's Jewish tradition, mm -hmm. the more we just keep seeing new layers of meaning that we wouldn't catch if we hadn't known these earlier stories. Mm -hmm. Right. Because who Jesus was talking to, especially when he was talking to the Jews, they already naturally did this. Right. He, he didn't have to explain to them his meaning when he said Jonah and the whale. Right. So we who no longer naturally do typology, especially when we're reading scripture, we have to relearn typology in order for us to fully understand the meaning of what Jesus was saying in the prophets and the apostles and such. We're saying we have to relearn the the meaning behind the words, the the audience behind the words and everything for us to understand deeper what what it is that the message that is trying to be conveyed. Yeah. And the church helps us with that naturally every Sunday when we're yes. participating in Eucharist because it's the way that the Sunday lectionary is structured in that the gospel reading for each Sunday uh, the, the first reading that's been chosen for that day, there's some sort of typological link. Now, sometimes it's not always very strong, um, <laughs> but the way that the lectionary was designed in the light of the Second Vatican Council, when the lectionary was redone, there was a real effort to recover some of those typological images and, and pattern them into our liturgy so that the preaching that's done could at least sometimes replicate some of that preaching from the early church. Uh, that was intentional by design. Yeah, that's really cool. I, net, I, I knew that there was connections to be like, oh, those things go together, but I never fully understand why or the meaning behind them or the depth that they were trying to, to show us in those connections during the mass yeah. until I did level three formation and understood typology. And then it had a whole different meaning. Like, Oh, you're meaning to draw these connections. You're saying that gospel has more meaning in light of the first reading. And so that yeah. I was very grateful for that. And one of the ways that sometimes I like to think of it is just the things that we're pondering in the mystery of like the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the kingdom of God. Um, we could even say the mystery of who Mary is, 
that these are such great mysteries, as we oftentimes say with even the little child, uh, like one, one image or one name doesn't help us to get to the whole, like to, we have an experience of Jesus Christ and it is such a huge, Jesus is such a huge, great mystery that just one way of calling upon him doesn't capture the wholeness of who he is. And so we have used many names to call upon him. And we can see that in the gospel, like good shepherd, true vine, son of man. That's not one that we really do with the young child, but it's one that the gospels draw upon. Um, living water. You know, like there's, it's like each one of these opens us up a different picture but what begins to happen in level three is we can begin to see resonances that even go more deeply. The new Moses, huh? mm-hmm. um, the uh, that Christ, uh, or that we can think about like with Mary, sometimes she might be referred to as the new Eve mm-hmm. or the Ark of the Covenant. Like these are images from ancient text that help us as Christians to widen or deepen our um, our understanding of the mystery of who this person was, give us new ways of calling upon them and relating to them mm-hmm. and beginning to grasp more and more of the fullness of who they are. And definitely our picture of the kingdom of God continues to get bigger and bigger and wider and wider when we read the ancient text. And would you speak into how do we use typology specifically in catechesis of the Good Shepherd? So most of what we're going to do with typology is associated with level three, because the child at that age is ready to play with time in this way, in a way that they're not when they're younger. Um, We do have some very small seeds of it, you could say, even in level one. When we begin to look in the Advent season, Uh, the words of the prophets during Advent. So for example, when we give to the children the passage from Isaiah, I think chapter 7, 14, where it says, and a young woman shall be with child and she shall name him Emmanuel. You know, like that's one of those rare Old Testament passages that we do with Mm -hmm. children. And what we're out, what we're introducing it with children, we would just say these were words that were spoken, you know, very, very long before Jesus was even born. Um, and they have a meaning unto themselves. Like, I don't say this that much with the, the little one, the littlest children. I don't, you know, say all this, but I would say at, at Isaiah's own time, they had meaning at that moment for a child that was born in that time. But as Christians, when we're sitting here and we're trying to ponder the mystery of who Jesus is, do these words in light of what we've experienced in Jesus Christ, did they help give us even more clues to help us understand the mystery of who Jesus is. And so when we're with the young children in Advent, what we're just saying is, you know, this is a season of the year when we are pondering um, the mystery of Jesus and, and who he is. And we can listen to these words spoken so long before he came. And do they help us understand even more who he is? Give us a clue to who Jesus is. And what we could think about, older child is and do these words mean even more than what we have imagined them right now is there more meaning to these words that we have not yet grasped yet we won't grasp Mm. the fullness of all that scripture means until we are in parousia Mm. so we are introducing at a very seed level 
some of these Old Testament passages that have meant a great deal to Christians over time in pondering the mystery of Jesus. We're introducing them even in level one. Um, in level two, we're going to begin to lay out that idea of the history of salvation, which is, again, preparation for being able to do typology, to be able to recognize these three great moments in the history mm -hmm. of salvation, of creation, redemption, parousia. In level three, what we'll be able to do is to take that history with those three great moments and begin to look at um, key stories from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures texts, that have lived through time. And we can take these key stories because each of these stories has a moment that it, what it meant to the people who originally told that story, what it means in light of the mystery of Jesus Christ in the light of redemption, and what do we have to look forward to in parousia. So in level three, there are five key typologies, if you will, or five key Old Testament studies that we're going to engage with the children, the study of creation, um, the study of sin or the fall, uh, the study of the flood, Noah and the flood, mm -hmm. the study of Abraham, uh, and the study of Moses and the Exodus. And each of these we're going to take, we'll do it over a three-year cycle. It'll take three years to read all, all of those. But each of those will begin by doing just background study, huh? like reading the text itself and understanding what this meant um, for the original people who, who scribed this text. And then looking at, are there allusions between this text from ancient times and the way that we continue to live life in, in this time of redemption on a, onto the blank page, especially in the sacraments? And then looking at, um, especially through the words of the prophets, how might these stories point to God's continued action in history all the way into the future? How might they give mm -hmm. us a clue of what is still coming? Mm -hmm. um, and so looking again more and more deeply at the words of the prophets and uh, how they continue to give us hope, even in our own time. I really enjoy doing the typology work whenever we did level three. Actually, I did it with you. You were my formation leader. <laughs> We had so much fun. <laughs> we, I remember having all these huge aha moments when we did the typology uh -huh. work. And because it was, again, it was like these stories from the past now had a huge influence on how I looked at certain things in Jesus's life, but more so in now things that we do today, like baptism and such. And again, pointing towards that future. So it was, again, instead of looking at things as past and present, it was more of that evolving light that I was talking about before. Like mm -hmm. when we did that typology work, these stories from the Old Testament that instead of looking at them like, oh, yeah, that happened in the past. Let's just know about the history, but it doesn't influence us. It was no longer that. It was these stories from the past are propelling us into the present and then the future. Yeah. They have a contributing effect on how we can um, better understand what is happening around us. And it just, it had a whole new meaning to me. And so I so appreciated that typology work for that. Yeah. And you know who um, we owe a great debt of gratitude to in that regard is um, one of the theologians whose work undergirded the Second Vatican Council, which, you know, led to a recovery of these rights of the church, like RCIA, um, 
looking at that in a more typological lens, uh, the lectionary being redeveloped in terms of these type, this typological, the three-year lectionary for Sundays, mm -hmm. like was Jean Danielou. So he was a French Jesuit who in the early 1900s, in the years leading up to the Second Vatican Council, really worked on recovering some of, he, it was kind of part of the the ressourcement movement, like going back into the sources of ancient Christian history and looking at how did early preaching in the church happened. And so he brought forward and retranslated for our own age, a lot of these early church fathers and helped the church to recover and reappropriate some of these ancient ways of, of reading the text and, and living the text. Yeah. So he was one of the theologians that, that Sophia drew on a lot in kind of thinking through and developing these works. And then of course, what she was observing was that children have these natural pattern seeking brains. huh? And so that children, there's a great parallelism between the early church and early childhood. So, and that, so that children are also uh, always looking for patterns and able to spot these and, she would just say there was this great resonance between what the church was trying to recover in the Second Vatican Council and what children were showing her in the atrium, that these always mm. went hand in hand with each other. Mm, yeah, I I feel like children actually can do it a little bit easier than us. I think <laughs> that's probably true. I think I that's mean, probably true. With the level one child, whenever you're like, I wonder who the good shepherd is. And they're like, Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, no, they make <laughs> connections very, very fast. Yes. Yeah, where we're like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and would you also speak into how typology helps us in our conversations with our particularly our jewish brothers and sisters oh okay like ecumenically how does yes, this yes, how, what, what does this mean right uh, no that's a great question because there is i should say there's some hesitancy um around typology theologically also and for really good reason um as you were talking about earlier or alluding to earlier, sometimes historically the way that we've done typology in the church has been what Sophia refers to as two-stage typology, or we could say it's substitution typology, which mm -hmm. means like once upon a time in the Old Testament, God chose the Jewish people, but now God has chosen, now the people of God are the church, Christians, and there's no longer a need for the Jewish people. So there's the old and the new. Um, once upon a time, God did this and to bring the people to freedom, but now we have baptism. So baptism replaces that. So it's, it's law. It's not this sense of continuity that you're talking about, but a sense of replacement or substitution. And that, that kind of doing of typology has done tremendous damage in the church on one way it's we've lost contact with any sense of parousia. Like we've, We've, we, it's a sense that like time is finished and there shall be nothing more until like the world is wiped out. And so we lose our sense of hope or dynamism in history, that history is still going somewhere. History's the plan of God in history is still being realized. It climaxed in Jesus Christ, but it has not ended. You know, like history is still mm -hmm. going on. And so, um, and, and, and it's happening now within us. So we do, substitution theology ends kind of that dynamism of history. But one of the other things that Sophia talks about in her own writing, and this comes especially in Religious Potential of the Child too, 
she says, it's done us tremendous damage in our relationship with our Jewish brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. Um, because it always makes it look as if we've replaced them and that their role in history has been erased. And what she says is, when God makes a covenant, God never breaks a covenant. God is still in covenant relationship with our Jewish brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been grafted, we could, in hope, we have been grafted into a covenant with God um, through them. But that both Jews and Christians are longing for this moment in history that has yet to be realized of um, when God will be all in all, the parousia. Within Judaism, they might speak about the tikam olam, which is so similar to how we, we in catechesis talk about the kingdom of God, the healing of the world. And so she says, we are perhaps one way of thinking about it, like on parallel tracks that are continuing to long and strive for a moment in history that we have not yet seen. One of my favorite uh Jewish authors, when she's talking about being in relationship with Christians, she says the image that she offers is the experience of standing on railroad tracks. She says within Judaism and Christianity, like we're standing on parallel tracks and it looks like never the two shall meet because the differences that we have around how we understand the role of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. in history are so profound. Mm -hmm. She says, but when you're standing on tracks and you're looking at the horizon, One of the great hopes we could say is that even though we're on parallel tracks at the horizon, they meet. And so she says, Jews and Christians are standing in history and we're both, we recognize we're on parallel tracks. Like we, we know that logically we're not going to overlap with each other on this. And yet Mm -hmm. when we look at the horizon, there is a mysterious way in which we realize that our tracks intersect with each other. And, and that's what to me, the hope of, three-stage typology is, is that we recognize, yeah, there's a past and we both, you know, like the past, we interpret it in light of what it meant at that moment in time. For us as Christians, there's even more that those words mean in light of the person of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. but that standing right alongside our Jewish brothers and sisters who may or may, who may not share that perspective of history, the mystery of Jesus with us, that we are still longing for a moment unto the future, our, our tracks will cross and we recognize a, a common horizon that we're both, we're both longing for and, and striving for, moving toward. That is really beautiful. I really enjoy that imagery, um, especially because I feel that in my own formation as a child, it, it was like what you were saying before with Sophia with the past and present. It was, I, I feel indirectly it that that's the way that it was presented to me. But this path has so much more depth to it. And it also has so much more um, respect to it for our Jewish brothers and sisters. And to know that that was a deep commitment of Sophia's throughout her lifetime. I mean, she really was a Jewish Christian scholar and worked Mm -hmm. at the intersection of that dialogue. So for her, she just keep, she keeps emphasizing that the more deeply we understand Jesus's Judaism and remain in dialogue and collaboration with our Jewish brothers and sisters today, the more deeply we'll actually be able to live our own Christianity. Yes. Well, and before we finish, I would love for you, if you could share with us a story from the atrium that has to do with typology, has there been a time with children using the typology work that just really has stood out to you? Well, 
I have this memory in my mind. I, I've loved doing typology with level three children. <laughs> and um, one of the things that often the children in our level three atrium at College Church in St. Louis have chosen to do um, is that when we're doing one of these background studies of the text and we're going deeply into reading the original like Old Testament work, they they will begin to illuminate it or draw it as we're reading, because sometimes these go on for multiple weeks. So I'm remembering, for example, one time we were doing the study of Exodus, Moses and Exodus, and this went on for like mm-hmm. 12 weeks. And so the children, each day we would read and they would they would spend some time drawing it. And there was a group of about four children or so who drew the entire story as we we're going out. And so they had this wow. big, long, it was probably about 20 feet long, good 20 feet long, that they had drawn on old fax paper of these moments in the story all the way through. And so toward the end of the year, we just rolled out their drawing. And I said to the children, you know, sometimes when we're looking at these um, stories, they might remind us of other moments in scripture. Or maybe we'll see a, a connection between a moment in scripture. Is there anything like from our atrium that you would want to bring over and set on one of these pictures that you've drawn? Um, and there was kind of this moment of pause as we try to get started. So like on the picture of manna, I I set down the chalice and patent because I was like, well, let's just get them started on this work. And then they, the, the connections, mm-hmm. they seemed to click. And it was so interesting because they, one of them took our songbook from our prayer table and brought mm-hmm. it over and laid it on Miriam and the tambourine picture that they had drawn. And they oh, said when the, cool. when the, when the Israelites had been set free from slavery, they wanted to sing and praise God. And so that's what we're doing in the atrium is we're singing and praising God. And one of them took, I mean, these are just like the connections I would never have seen. One of them took the stand that was under, that we have underneath our Bible on the prayer table. And they put it on top of the story of Moses um, and the battle with the Amalekites where, uh, which is in the Old Testament, it speaks about Moses when they were, when they were in battle. As, as, as long as he held his arms open wide, the, um, the battle was going in their direction. And when his mm-hmm. arms fell down, the battle, they began to lose, Israelites began to lose the battle. And so they said mm-hmm. the Bible stand, as it's open, it reminds me of Moses' arms being open wide and they hold open oh, the word of wow. God for us. And as long as the word of God is open and our arms are outreached, we shall do fine in the battle of life. I mean, it was just like, these were connections I would never have seen. So we have some well-traced paths that we walk with the children, kind of the classical typologies that we, that we want to help illumine for them, like the manna and Eucharist, but the children are going to see connections beyond that. And they're going to, um, see these golden threads that we would never have seen. And they just, as you're saying, in the end, they're making for a beautiful, beautiful tapestry. I love that. I love that so much. I love that because the child each had their own aha moments with that. And so that Ambo will never mean the same thing to that child again. It it has a deeper meaning and will always think about about that battle. He will always have that connection in his head. So it'll always have a deeper meaning. And for each of those children in the, the hymn book and all, that's so beautiful. I love that. 
that's a great example of both what typology can do to create a deeper meaning, but also with the children being given space to have their own, create their own connections and the right. deeper meaning that will come from them doing that on their own. Yeah. And we're helping facilitate yeah. typological thinking in their mind. Yeah. So that, that for the rest of their life, they will continue to be pattern seekers. Um, yes. As they're reading scripture. Yeah. That's great. That is really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thanks, Harry. It's a delight to talk to you about this topic. This is great. I love this topic. This is a very, I think probably because it's a topic that I personally want to dive into more and to grow more into. So I'm really excited to get to um, talk to you about it. And do you have any uh, sources that we can tell our listeners to maybe dive into if they want to learn more about this topic? By all means. Um, so there's a couple of things that have been written in the journal on this topic, uh, a couple articles that maybe we could include as links. And then in the year with Sophia Cavalletti, uh, especially the chapter on Jean Danielou would be a really rich one for people to begin to read and to search out some of those books um, mm -hmm. of his, his writings might be fascinating to people. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for sharing your wisdom with us. We really appreciate you and all that you do for the work. Oh, I appreciate, Carrie, all that you are doing for the work. It's good to be your sister. <laughs> thank you, Anne. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We are grateful for each and every one of you. In our show notes, you will find a link to an article that Anne Garita wrote for our newsletter back in 2012, specifically on typology. So go check it out and dive deeper into this really beautiful subject that helps us understand scripture better. I also put links there for Anne's personal website and for the book about Sophia, the life of Sophia Cavalletti that she mentions in this episode. All will be down in our show notes. If you have any questions about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, or if you have a suggestion about something that maybe we could talk about on the podcast, please email us at cgs at cgsusa.org. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. We want to thank all the contributing members of the association because you are making this podcast possible. Thank you. If you want to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, or if you would like to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for joining us. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.